Hey, everybody, really quickly before we start the show, I just want to mention again that we are doing a live taping of the Savage Lovecast on Valentine's Day at Seattle's Neptune Theater. For tickets, go to tinyearl.com slash S-A-V-L-O-V. That's tinyearl.com slash savlove. Mistress Matisse will be there. Monk will be there. The Human Cupcake. Uh, comedy writer and author Simon Rich. We're going to have lap dances and a lot of fun. Uh, including sex toy giveaways. So please come on down to the Neptune Theater, Seattle, Washington, on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 8 p.m. For tickets, go to tinyearl.com. Sav love. You're listening to A Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I've always been a little mystified by guys who say they can't feel anything when they have a condom on. Uh, I'm a guy. I have a dick. I have a dick. I've used condoms with guys who have dicks themselves who also use condoms. And there's something that sometimes happens when you use a condom, which is the condom breaks. Uh, This happens very rarely if you're using condoms correctly, if you're using a correctly sized condom, if you're using lubricant, you make sure the condom isn't expired or old or damaged, has been sitting in the sun or your wallet. If you're using condoms correctly, the odds of a breakage are very slim, but it happens every once in a while. Condom breaks. And here's what doesn't happen when a condom breaks. A guy doesn't go flying across the room uh, as if his dick has just been electrocuted because there's this sudden surge of sensation because the condom is gone. So when I, you know, whenever guys say to me, whenever I hear guys, it comes up a lot, particularly from young guys, they don't want to wear a condom or they can't wear a condom because you can't feel anything. I always look at them like bull untrue because removing a condom suddenly mid-intercourse if you couldn't feel anything would result in such intense new feelings that you would your head would explode and here's what happens when condoms break mid-intercourse people don't notice people don't realize that's why often uh, condom breakage can uh, contribute to pregnancy or HIV transmission because people just keep going if they're not checking to make sure the condom is still intact and in place every once in a while they keep going and they come and they didn't realize the condom had broken because they couldn't tell the fucking difference. Finally, I have science to back me up. In this point, a study of 1,600 men between the ages of 18 and 59 found that, quote, sexual arousal, ease of erection, overall pleasure, and orgasm weren't much different in those who used condoms compared to those who did not use condoms. The big difference that Debbie Herbenick found – with condom satisfaction is using lubricant, not on the outside of the condom, but a little bit on the inside of the condom. Not so much that the condom slips off easily, but a little bit at the tip and the top uh, so that the head of the penis is getting a little squish and a little love during the condom fucking makes all the difference. And there is no appreciable difference in sensation when you're using condoms and you're using them correctly. And this study, this science backs up my anecdotal observations uh, having sex with people who have dicks who use condoms that sometimes when those condoms break, nobody notices because they can't tell the fucking difference. So if you are out there and you are claiming that you can't wear a condom because you can't feel anything, you are a liar. If you are with someone who is making that claim, they are a liar or they have never used a condom that is appropriate to their dick. The condoms you're using are too small, probably uh, too tight, too thick, or they're not putting a little bit of lubricant in the tip of an unlubricated condom. So nobody has to fall for this bullshit anymore. Nobody should advance this bullshit. Nobody should make this claim. And nobody certainly should allow someone to have sex with them without a condom based on this, I can't feel anything claim because it is horseshit. We're going to get up in the grills of other people who are engaged in horseshittery around birth control, sexually transmitted infections, and other shit today with our very special returning guest and another friend of the show, Dr. Anna Kaminsky. From Planned Parenthood of the Greater Northwest will be joining me after the break to handle your sex, STI, and health questions today on the Savage Lovecast. This episode is brought to you by AdamandEve.com. For a limited time only, Adam and Eve will let you pick three free adult DVDs with your order. Just go to AdamandEve.com and enter Savage at checkout. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature, including fiction, nonfiction, and periodicals. For a free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash savage. Joining us now live and in the glamorous 
Savage Love Studios on the 23rd floor of the Washington Mutual Building in downtown Seattle with the view of beautiful Puget Sound. Dr. Anna Kaminsky, the senior physician at Planned Parenthood of the Greater Northwest, thank you for joining us. This view is stunning. It is stunning. It is stunning. <laughs> Sometimes I'm so stunned I can barely make it out. I think this room is seven feet by seven feet. Complete with it's almost egg crates on the wall. It's it's a good look and no oxygen at all to muddy up the atmosphere. No. We, we have a perfect crystal crystal clear view out the windows because there's actually no air in there here. There is no air, no atmosphere to interfere. <laughs> uh, you picked. We did something a little differently this time. Uh, you've been on the show many times, and we really appreciate you swinging down here. Oh, it's a blast from the Planned Parenthood abortion plex up <laughs> yes. there on Capitol Hill. Uh, <laughs> We let you pick out the questions. So I'm just going to sit back and you're going to drive the show. All right. Well, we've talked about a few of them and we're going to start with a question about herpes testing. Hi, Dan. I am calling from the East Coast after a uh, visit to Planned Parenthood to get some STD testing done. Um, I asked that they test for herpes and they told me that uh, they don't test for that unless you've had open sores or been in a high-risk risk situation, uh, which I was confused about because you can pass it without having any of those things uh, going on. And they told me that due to the fact that the test looks for a number of antibodies and doesn't actually test for the virus itself, um, that they get too many false positives and therefore uh, they just don't do it. Um, I find this really strange. Can you tell me if this is normal or um, if STD, excuse me, herpes testing should be recommended uh, with your yearly testing? I'm confused. So what isn't high risk for herpes? Well, so let's talk about the CDC, Center for Disease Control. I understand it's very high risk to talk about the CDC. It is high risk to talk about the CDC and you may not get to talk about what you want to talk about when you're with the CDC. However, what she is telling us is actually a correct way of looking at it from a public health point of view. We test because we want to be able to reduce not only um, infections and passage of infections, but we also want to reduce the sequela or the outcomes or the bad effects. From a public health standpoint, we actually don't think that there's truly bad effects from herpes. So dun, dun, dun. I know. That's very well, controversial to say because it is. we as sex advisors are contractually obligated to clutch our pearls and fall on the floor in a dead faint when someone says herpes out loud. This is my third time talking to you about herpes and every single time we do come to the same conclusion that you need to settle down about herpes. And it is in the grand scheme of things, individual results may vary. However, for most people, not a big deal. Not a big deal. The only group that herpes really affects from an outcomes point of view is women who are pregnant who may have an outbreak late in pregnancy and may need a C-section. You don't want a C-section. I get that. That's totally fine. If you're identified as having herpes, and here's the important thing that she was told, it turns out if I were to take a group of people, this is a stat major issue, statistics. If you took statistics, I didn't. If I you didn't took care statistics, you have issues. We, yes. But you're good at math. Right. But you have issues. So the, the, the down – the real – point of what she was told is if you do not have risk factors for getting herpes, that is, you do not have multiple sex partners, but most people do these days, I understand as a risk factor. If you do not have a partner that, it, that knows they have herpes and if you have no signs in the past or now of herpes outbreaks, the chance of your test being a false positive is higher than for all those people that do have multiple partners, that do have a history of herpes, that do have a partner with herpes. So what public health departments say is don't test a low-risk population because it's more likely to cause panic, anxiety, disarray, crying, fighting, but emotional But someone who has herpes, who's asymptomatic and for them it's not a big deal, they could have sex with someone who doesn't have herpes who then has a very problematic relationship with the virus for the rest of their lives. That somebody who That's is right. asymptomatic and doesn't have herpes, who could have tested, who could have found out, may end up passing unwittingly the virus onto someone. And it is hugely complicated for some people, people with compromised immune systems yes. particularly. Uh, and that can come along later in life. You may be yeah. fine with herpes for 50 years and then later in life really have a problem with it if your immune system should be compromised. Yeah. 
how do you control for that? And what about that aspect of, uh, of herpes transmission? So I don't have an MPH because I don't think that way. I think about individuals. And when someone comes to my office and says, I got to know this because it's worse for me emotionally to not know it, mm-hmm. I test them. And then if it comes back positive, I tell them if you're in this lower risk group, there's a possibility we have been wrong. If I test you for 20 things, guaranteed two are going to come back wrong. And how prevalent is herpes in the population? How common is it? If we do blood tests on everybody and look for the antibodies, uh, HSV-1, the oral one, is almost 100 percent. And yes, it goes down there. Mm-hmm. HSV-2, 40 to 70 percent depending on the population. 20 to 70 percent depends on your population. So basically if you're a sexually active adult – you're likely to have it. You're likely to have it or have be had. exposed to it or right. have had it that you – we just can't as sexually – you know, there's a, a risk-benefit analysis and the yes. benefit of being a sexually active adult, the, the benefit of sex and intimacy and fun outweighs the potential risks yep. or you have to be willing to like shoulder those risks and not be yeah. a, a really kind of an infant about the risks of herpes exposure because yes. it's almost inevitable. And if you can't tolerate any risk for herpes exposure – Don't have sex. Don't have sex. That's kind of the message we've come to three times now. And that's not anything – that's not a trade-off anybody really wants to make. No. So, you know, the real issue is if somebody believes they have had herpes in the past, I would test them. If somebody believes that they have been exposed because somebody says I have herpes, I would test them. If somebody has multiple partners because that puts you in a little different risk group, I would test them. Ultimately, you always can take prophylactic antiviral medications to reduce your risk of transmitting person to person. The tricky thing here is disclosure. With Talking herpes, about well, it. Well, herpes being so common yeah. is the onus on the person who is going to bed with someone to assume that the odds are high that this person has or has been exposed to herpes yeah. or is the onus on the person who has herpes and knows it to disclose to someone who may have an irrational reaction to that information? I think the answer was yes and yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think you asked three things. The, the other thing she said is annual testing, absolutely not required for annual testing. In fact, right now we're recommending a once-in-a-lifetime HIV test that's new as of, I don't know, last eight months or something. And the other is annual testing for chlamydia under 26 years old if you're female, under 29 if you're male because we know they mature slower. That's not true, but I thought I'd say that. <laughs> Maybe it is true, but well, I thought I'd say it anyway. <laughs> I have yet to mature, so I don't think in this room you can totally get away with that joke. Let's take the next call. Hi, my name is Biff. I'm 35 years old, straight male. And my question is, if I can contract influenza from a woman that has influenza while I'm performing cunnilingus. Of all the questions, that was easy. No. Moving right along. Hey, Dan Savage. Might be a question for one of your doctor friends, but I have a vampire fetish. Then I like to drink other people's blood. And I was wondering, is there a safe way to do that? Or is it like breath play and I can either just try it and occasionally have disastrous consequences? I predicted this. Before we get to your answer, I predicted this. When that... Stephanie Meyer's books, when those Twilight books took off, I said, in 10 years, I will be answering, I will be fielding questions from vampire fetishists. That this is going to, like 12-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 8-year-olds, 9-year-olds, that age of life, that impressionable age of life, when people sort of randomly, our brains, there's nothing wrong with you, but our brains sort of snap onto some random stimulus and a fetish is born. And this like highly sexualized vampire story that Stephanie Meyer wrote, well, of course it was going to feed into... These fantasies. Not that there weren't vampire fetishes before, but there is going. There is now a bumper crop, and I blame you, Stephanie Meyer, for the fact that it makes this guy's dick hard to drink other people's blood. Now, let's answer his question. Well, wouldn't you want to if you became sparkly? You get all sparkly in the sunlight. Obviously, I, I'm Team Jacob. Okay. Yeah. Well, I think I am too. <laughs> um, if I thought about it. Have you seen the armpits so, of that guy? Holy shit. Who's uh, not Team Jacob at this point? Team Jacob. Or is that Edward? I get them. No, Edward's sparkly. Our guy. Edward is sparkly. And Jacob, Jacob is, is a wolf. Muscle tits. Yeah, yeah. So the here's the deal about blood. Um, well, let's just go back to it. women have their periods every month. So wait, what? Yes, you're not you're not one of those, but that's true. Uh, I bet there's plenty of people who have gone down on a woman having her period, but but none in this room. None in this room. 
<laughs> one of the tech savvy at risk youth is making a face, so uh, somebody we are laughing. red wings at some point. Luckily, you can't see our faces. <laughs> um, the truth of the matter is we still don't know what's – what can be carried by blood. Uh, little do you know that there are not only hepatitis A and B, which you know about, there is C, D, E, F, J, K. I think we're up into the M and N now. What that means is these are all things that have been in the blood. There have been so many things in the blood and we still don't know about them. I mean, wasn't HIV a big surprise? Where'd mm-hmm. that come from? My recommendation is don't go out of your way to drink blood. Because it really can carry some nasty stuff, and we don't know what it's going to do to you. So, is there a safe way to do this? I don't think so. I don't. I really don't think so. For the purpose of simply drinking blood. That said, have we been exposed? You bet. One nice thing about your body is that you've managed to kill a lot of stuff. But, but can we say to this person the same thing we said to people about herpes? You know, risk benefit analysis. If the pleasure of drinking blood is so great that you're willing to. Deal with the consequences, potential risk. All right. Roll your dice. Move your mice. Well, at this point, I know that herpes won't cause um, devastating illness such as hepatitis B, which can cause liver cancer and liver failure or hepatitis C, which is liver failure. Or HIV. Or HIV. Which is a chronic manageable condition so long as you're lucky enough to have access to drugs. So I don't I – I can't say it. You know, Am I wearing my doctor hat? Yeah, I'm wearing my doctor so hat. So your doctor hat says the risk of drinking blood – so far outweighs the potential benefits of this turn-on that you shouldn't explore this turn-on by actually drinking blood. You should find some sort of blood substitute. Blood substitute. Ketchup. Ketchup. Now, would you, would your doctor hat say don't go down on a woman during her period? No, I don't say that because we really – you know, one of the things we love to say is evidence-free or data-free zone. Mm-hmm. I can't really say that that would – probably put you at a lot of risk. We do know that you have risk. We do know that that's a really great time to get HIV. That's a particularly higher risk time um, because, of course, we know it's in the bloodstream. But we should err on the side of eating a menstruating woman's pussy just to like calm her down. Are we doing sex therapy now? I'm not sure what we're doing. I just don't understand why it's not okay for this kid to drink blood, but we're not going to tell people not to go down on a woman during her period. Well, actually, I would say to you safe sex practices. So, you know, if you're Dental in a long term. No one in the whole history of latex has ever once used in practice. Never spotted in the field. I, they sell them. But yeah, they sell them and they sit in drawers. <laughs> they probably do until they crack and dehydrate. Right. But the, I think the thing is just risk reduction and blood is a great contaminant. So don't go down on a woman during her period. Uh, it depends. We're going to assess your risk. How long have you been with her? Have you both been tested? Um, have you had the adult conversation? Could that apply in a vampire's case though? Could this guy have like a long-term committed relationship and he and his girlfriend or boyfriend, whatever he's into, get tested for everything and then they occasionally drain a pint and knock it <laughs> Drain back. a pint. Don't do that much. That's not good. Uh, Too much. A shot okay. glass. What else? Okay. Whatever it is. I, I'm actually kind of curious how he's getting blood out of people. But I'm not here to answer that question or maybe even – Maybe Ask he's it. A, a phlebotomist. A phlebotomist, right? No, I want an answer. Is there is there a scenario possibly where it's safe for this guy to do what turns him on? In the same way, it could be safe in a long term committed relationship for you to go ahead and eat the wife's pussy during a period. Yes, I think that there is probably a scenario where it's safe, but not with randos and not with a cast of thousands. And no, and I guess I've I've spent so many years avoiding getting blood from patients on me or. Yeah, let's, it's patience. I'm trying to think of anybody. No, nobody else in my life I probably get bled on. <laughs> Never been in <laughs> a major him. bus accident no. or anything. <laughs> I've delivered babies with ha- bare hands. Kind of fun. They're kind of wiggly. But, you know, the – They're not born wearing gloves. Nope, they are not. So, you know, I think that it's really all about is this the – you know, from a universal precaution standpoint, is this the worst thing that you can probably get in or on your body from yes. an infectious standpoint? Yes. Yes, it is. And – I would say don't do it. Okay. Or if you're going to do it, it has to be in the context of a long-term committed relationship with someone whose health status you're aware of, somebody you know to be safe, monogamous and fluid exchange exclusive and you've both been tested for all the HEPs and everything else and then maybe. That we know how to test for so far. And that's setting the bar really high. It is a high bar. I would do that for blood. So Team Jacob, high bar. High bar. No, Team Edward. High bar. High bar Team forever. Jacob, you just want to eat that muscle boy's armpits? That's low bar. Yeah. And, you know, with Edward, you have to get married first before you have sex. That's true. No sparkle dick without a ring on it. <laughs> I know. But a big cock ring on it. <laughs>
This episode is brought to you by AdamandEve.com. For a limited time only, Adam and Eve will let you pick three free adult DVDs with your order. Go to adamandeve.com and order almost any one item at 50% off. Choose a new adult toy, lube, or almost anything from over 18,000 adult products. Then at checkout, enter offer code SAVAGE and you'll get to choose three free adult DVDs. That's right. You get to choose your own DVDs. Plus, receive a free mystery gift and free shipping on your entire order. Choose from all kinds of genres for both gay and straight folks. And now you can also shop on your mobile phone at Adam and Eve. That's adamandeve.com and enter Savage at checkout. Hey, Dan. I'm a 38-year-old lesbian. I'm recently single after a very long monogamous relationship. So the last thing I want right now is another long monogamous relationship. I just want to get around. I want to keep things casual for now but that's got me thinking a lot about safe sex. Um, I've gone out and looked on the Internet because it's been a long time since I needed to know this, and all the same sites basically say the exact same thing regarding lesbians and STIs, which is use the dam, here's all the things you can get, use the dam. But the thing is, I it's my perception that very few people, whether they're lesbian or straight, are using dams during cunnilingus. They can be hard to find, they don't have them in my drugstore, uh, and there seems to be this perception that going down is relatively safe. But I'm not sure if the science backs that up, because all I get on the Internet is a list of the risks. Nothing qualifies how risky it is. I don't want to base the safety of me and my potential lovers on what everybody else seems to be doing. But I would like to know how risky is it exactly? Well, speaking of dental dams. Speaking of them. Okay, I have a very strong recommendation. First and foremost, don't go looking for dental dams. Go looking for really good, high-quality, non-lubricated condoms. Cut them down the middle, and you have a really nice, incredibly thin barrier for those people that need, want a barrier. Why not dental dams? Why not look for dental dams? They're really thick, and they're hard to find. Mm -hmm. They're just a lot more – they're a lot of rubber. They're a lot of rubber and they're mostly latex and people are getting latex allergic. So mm-hmm. you can get some really, you know, really thin, really great condoms. Use the condom. Get the non-lubricated. The lubricated have nanoxinol 9 for the most part. All right. Don't taste good. So your, no official, your official position is she should do what no one does and use a dental dam. Nope. That's what I said if she's going to use a dental dam. Here's the real thing. She says, can you give me the numbers? No. I researched this for a long time last night. I was up trying to figure this out because I wanted to come back with numbers. And when you look at all of the websites, nobody wants to say, boy, you are at such low risk, you don't have to worry about it. They all say, assess your risk, assess your risk. But if you really look at the numbers and the risk of transmitting, even HIV, there have been rare reported under 10 cases ever reported of HIV transmission, woman to woman. Most of the supposedly woman to woman HIV transmission turns out that there were other risk factors involved. Mm -hmm. But if there's really nothing else but woman to woman transmission, they are vanishingly rare. That's That's like a research medical term. We say vanishingly rare. We like that term a lot. She might as well put a dental dam on her head in case a meteor should hit her. Oh. As she walks down the street. Oh, yeah. A really thick one that a meteor would bounce off Like of. 10 dental dams is probably <laughs> going to work because they really are that thick. But, you know, it's probably sex negativity. You know, when you talk about these really low-risk activities, yeah. even, you know, sex-positive websites, yes. even, you know, the CDC isn't that sex-negative, actually. Their advice on sex generally mm-hmm. uh, isn't as infected with anti-sex hysteria as some people might assume. But still, when it comes down to really low-risk activities, I think the sex negativity in the culture inhibits – Advisors from saying, eh, probably okay, go for it because nobody in a sex-negative culture wants to be the person who said, okay, go for it because somebody might get a hangnail and die and sex is never worth what – you know. sex has to be completely zero risk before anybody can be told to go for it and it's never going to be that. But generally, you know, go for it. You're not yeah. – as a lesbian, your risks of STI exposure are really low. Skin to skin, all that – even all that factored in, it's yes. still low. Yes. The preponderance, the, the, the infection rates are low, so low to begin with in that community. That's right. And diseases can't be passed from person to person if they're not present in one uh, – if they're not present in at least one of the 
folks in that bed. And if you're a lesbian, a lesbian identified woman, some other lesbian identified woman, the chances of you landing in bed with somebody who's already exposed to something are slim. Not non-existent, but slim. But slim. And if you put together all of the stats, all of the numbers, here is what I'm I'm making this up. Okay, data free. <laughs> I'm making this up. Data free. That's how we roll here at the Savage Podcast. Data Lodecast. free. But if you um, have the adult conversation, have you or do you use IV drugs? Have you or have you in the past or do you currently have male partners? Well, okay, you have risk for women. Because those other risk factors you mentioned when you talk about lesbian to lesbian HIV transmission are men. Yes, and over 90% of women who sleep with women have had sexual experience with men in the past. So when have they been tested? Just have the adult conversation. Ask. Have the adult conversation out there because we're certainly not going to have them here on the Savage Club Cast. (laughs) I I shy away from those adult conversations. And buy a good condom. And cut it up. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of audiobooks with more than 100,000 downloadable titles across all types of literature and featuring audio versions of many New York Times bestsellers. For listeners of this podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook to give you a chance to try out their service. One audiobook to consider is Just Add Hormones, an insider's guide to the transsexual experience by Matt Cayley. For that free audiobook of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash savage. That's audiblepodcast.com slash savage. Hi, um, I am a 28-year-old healthcare worker, and a couple of weeks ago, I had an occupational HIV exposure. It's really pretty horrible and pretty terrifying, and I am doing, um, I went to the the, um, employee health services at my institution and decided to start on post-exposure prophylaxis which you might be interested to know is Truvada and Icentris, which is tenofovir and tricitabine and raltegravir, and trying to deal with it on that end. My question has to do with my relationship. I have been in a relationship with the greatest dude in the world for um, maybe a year and a half. He's the greatest. He's been handling this marvelously. He's so supportive, and he's just fantastic. My question is not about him. Ultimately, um, so I've been doing. I, you know, I've been talking to the people in charge of my healthcare and that kind of stuff. And they they suggest like they don't suggest they inform me that I should be you know using condoms or just don't have sex for six months, uh, which is fair and totally appropriate. So my partner and I are doing that. The problem is that we keep on having these false starts with sex, like not necessarily having sex, but with like oral or mutual masturbation, anything like that. I can't stop feeling like I'm some like petri dish of AIDS. Like there's just a little voice in the back of my head going like, don't give your boyfriend HIV. Don't give your boyfriend HIV. Don't give your boyfriend HIV. Even though like my exposure was quite, quite low risk and I'm taking my meds and everything seems to be under control. I can't seem to do minor sex, not minor, but like non-penetrative even sexual acts without kind of inwardly freaking out and even having a hard time masturbating. And, you know, the meds themselves have certain side effects, including, you know, exacerbations of depression and weird dreams. And it's really tough. And I uh, was just wondering if you might have any advice. How quickly does somebody go, uh, when they go on PEP, uh, drop to undetectable levels, uh, to to undetectable viral load? Uh, I don't know. I I really don't know about how... I mean, really what you're doing with PEP is 28 days. Um, The fact that she's taking actually three meds tells me she actually had a high-risk exposure Um, because usually what you do is you go off those right away when you find out that the source person is HIV negative. So it sounds like either they were at very high risk for being HIV positive and couldn't test the person or the person was HIV positive. Um, You go on PEP post-exposure prophylaxis for 28 days and then you stop. So at least at this point, um, we looked at when the call came in. She is off those meds and I hope she's feeling better about it. I also want to say that this is really classic. I mean, this is really typical. This is really scary. You kind of feel on pins and needles for a while and I'm sure that that feeling has actually gotten better with time. And I also want to congratulate her on having the most wonderful guy in the world. 
Um, the reason that they've talked about condoms for six months is because the recommendation is to test it six weeks, 12 weeks, and 24 weeks. What we're looking for is the antibodies. Now, actually, we can also look for the HIV viral capsule itself, um, and that's probably what she'll do as an occupational exposure. But they really aren't going to guarantee her that she is absolutely 100% not going to get HIV until she's 24 weeks out or six months out. Hey, let's, let's game out a hypothetical where okay. she has HIV. Mm-hmm. The odds of female to male transmission during oral, during mutual masturbation, even during intercourse yes. are, are really small. Really small. So even if she, you know, unfortunately, you, you spoke earlier about yes. in a professional capacity always being running from blood and trying yes. to protect yourself from exposure to blood, mm-hmm. this is it. This is the reason why people it. in medical fields run from blood. They don't want to be in this situation mm-hmm. where they're at risk for or on PEP because PEP is a pain in the ass. Um, or or infected in this way. Mm-hmm. But even if she is infected, even if she has HIV, mm-hmm. particularly if she's on meds then, if she's being treated That's right. for HIV, the odds that she will infect her boyfriend, we can't call it vanishingly small, but really small, very really, small. Really small. His okay. risk in a sexual relationship with you, even if you don't use condoms for vaginal intercourse, if your viral load is undetectable, are vanishingly small. You like that vanishing? I, I do, and I think I think we have we can say that in this. Yes, there's plenty of data. There's lots and lots of data. This is one of the things where it's not data free. We know how low that risk is for her. So um, I'm just throwing this out there in case you know the caller is listening and is off pep and has tested positive. That mm-hmm. I, I don't want her jumping off a building. Don't even jump if she's, off a building, even if she's positive. Yes, her you know this wonderful guy who I hope is still being wonderful is at. No risk practically. Practically, but use a condom. But use a condom. But even if you yes. didn't, still his risk is very, very low. Don't drink her blood. And don't drink her blood. If you want to go back to the blood thing. <laughs> circling back to an earlier so crazier caller. I know. Cunnilingus with a cut up condom. But everything she described, vaginal intercourse, uh, mutual, mutual masturbation, masturbation, oral sex with someone who is being treated – Particularly if you use condoms for penetration, your risk of passing the virus to your partner, very low. I have friends who have been in serodiscordant. That's what they call it yes. when there's a positive person in a relationship and a negative person in a relationship. I have friends who have been in serodiscordant relationships for 20 years That's right. and the negative partner is still negative. Yeah. And and the, the – gosh, I wish I had looked up um, – the actual transmission rate, you know, I want to make up like one out of a million. It's not one out of a million. One out of so many acts of intercourse, they call it in the studies. So many acts of intercourse. It is, sounds so sexy when you say I know, it that way. I know. I love it. <laughs> is so low. And, you know, I think part of it is she needs to come back off the cliff. And that takes time because it can be really scary to have a real exposure. And I think she had a real exposure mm-hmm. from what she's telling us here. Um, and I hope that she gets her libido back. I bet it is back. It's usually kind of you know going to take a little time to sort of step back into that. But everything that she mentioned doing, especially with a condom for any penetration, is incredibly low risk. You talked about viral ro- load. The real purpose of PEP is you never get a viral load. We hope we don't see that bump up for her. She might get antibodies down the road and we might probably could detect if she becomes um, infected. We can detect virus, but it should maintain an incredibly low value or a low load. And low risk. And low risk. Incredibly low risk. Hi, Dan. Um, This is a mid-20s gal with HPV, um, the wart variety. And I've only gotten a couple in the last year, but obviously I'm still worried about transmission. Um, and recently I heard about some lubes, lubes made with uh, carrageen. It's like a type of seaweed which, that's supposed to help prevent the transmission of HPV and other STDs. Um, specifically, I'm looking at this brand called BioGlide, uh, and this one is called BioGlide Safe with carrageen. Um, it's also vegan and organic and sounds pretty nice. Uh, so I'm wondering if you've heard of it and if there's anything to it, um, you know, if the carrageen is really doing what it claims. Yeah, I'd sort of given up on manufactured uh, lubricants because most of them irritate me um, and just use coconut oil. It, but I'll definitely try something like this if if I can get some positive feedback on it. I, I totally missed the question. I got distracted by some internet pornography for a second. What? 
What? What was that? Carrageen? Okay. Carrots? Carrageenan. Carrageenan. It is a po- – OK. I'm going to talk science now. Big words. Polysaccharide made out of red seaweed or marine algae. Mm. It's in the yogurt you eat. It's mm. in your hair conditioner. It is in moisturizer and it is vegan because it's made out of algae, which so far vegans think is OK to eat. Give so, them time. Give them five minutes. I know. They'll come up with a reason you can't eat that shit. There are snails there. They're getting <laughs> killed when they make the or the honeybees. I can't get the honey thing. Don't eat honey because bee slaves. Bee slaves. <laughs> it's really hard to whip them. They're so tiny. I know. So here is something that I think you're gonna like. The most important thing is if you are a mouse and you consented to have carrageen and put in your vagina, followed by a dose of HPV. You did not get HPV. Now, I'm sure there was a comfort to the mouse who got strapped down and had seaweed <laughs> slammed in into its mouse twat. Now, if you're a macaque monkey and they put and they put a mouse in, that's had carrageenan put in its mouse twat. No, in we your, did. No, we did not. This is going to be like a turducken of like things being stuffed with carrageenan and then stuffed in other things. I know. So we've got the. Is that the vegetable kingdom going into the animal kingdom? But if you're a macaque and I put carrageenan in your vagina, which you don't own, but in your vagina, and then I try to scratch your cervix and give you HPV, you are less likely to get HPV. Now, So this stuff we, is good for vaginas. It's, it's pretty good. And if I put this stuff in a Petri dish, it turns out that HPV, HIV, and HSV – and Don't that is – wait, wait, wait. That is oh, sorry, sorry. warts and herpes yes. and AIDS, right. the viruses that cause all those things. Human papilloma, herpes simplex and human, human immunodeficiency OK. Virus. So you shellac somebody's vagina with this carrageenan. Well, we, we haven't done it in humans yet, although there is a South African study started in 2011. Oh, was that South Africa? There's a 2011 study going on and we may get some good answers. But here's what they did show in South Africa – with a bunch of women who did have carrageenan as half of a thousand had carrageenan, the other thousand didn't have it. Turns out that they did have a lower risk of getting HSV. So this polysaccharide, also called a protein kind of stuff, coats or seems to inhibit a virus. Is it tested yet? No. Uh, if the other lubes don't work for you, absolutely go for the vegan all natural carrageenan. That's my new drag name, carrageenan. Isn't it good? Carrageenan. Carrageenan. So, I'm Irish. There was actually an Irish drag queen. I know, Cara. Cara. Geenan. Geenan. That's I my new drag that's name. Like totally I said. It. So, um, if you're a mouse, if you're a macaque, it seems to be working to reduce your risk. And if you're a human, we don't know yet, but um, it what looks put, like it's good. What if you put a mouse? whose vagina had this stuff in it in your vagina. You would be totally safe because no one would get within a mile of your vagina. If Never. It had mouse in it. <laughs> but I will say that um, our purveyor of fine lubricated products here, right down the street. Babeland. Babeland does carry a lot of carrageenan-based products. And if you go online, the one – the product that they did use in this study in women in South Africa did reduce the risk of – HSV by almost half. Wow. Not nothing. And it's high there. So Sounds like a miracle seaweed. I, this was a great question because I had heard about it and gave me a chance to go, yay, carrageenan. So buy stock in carrageenan manufacturers <laughs> and wait for the next study. And uh, come out and see my next drag show where I will be performing as carrageenan. Cara- Karaginen, am I getting it wrong? Uh huh. Karaginen, Karaginen. I like my original drag name better. Helvetica okay. Bold. That's good. Hi, Dan. I'm a 27 year old bisexual woman in a relationship with a uh, straight man who's both my boyfriend and my dom. We've been together for a little under a year. I'm madly in love, never been fucked so exquisitely. Um, and although he's my dom, we have kind of a cuckold relationship. Not not the typical kind, um, more of like a DS-based thing where I'm his whore and I fuck for his enjoyment, uh, the whole royalty perk firm competition things. Um, he loves to watch other men fuck me. Um, and the only problem is that my pussy hates me and ruins everything. Uh, for my whole life, 
even way, way before sex was in the picture, I've been really susceptible to bad viral infections like uh, passing stones, pissing blood for days. Uh, if it's not bladder infections, it's yeast infections. Um, I know the drill. I take cranberry pills every day. I pee before and after sex. I don't have STIs. I play safely. I keep very clean. Uh, but it's like my pussy slut shames me. And anyone new who enters it is likely to set off infection. Um, even when I don't fuck anybody else, I'm just my boyfriend, which is vanilla to us after a while. Um, I'll still sometimes get infections, but not as frequent or likely than when I fuck someone new. Uh, I saw a urologist who basically told me to stop being a slut. Um, the pain has become a deterrent from sex, and I feel, like, inadequate and unfulfilled. And the seven me, who wants to please, even though I know he doesn't feel this way, still makes me feel like I'm disappointing him um, and ruining things for him, too. It's like my pussy's an abusive ex-boyfriend who just, like, ruins sex for me. Um, even when I'm horny, I'll avoid encounters or sometimes even avoid masturbating alone with toys just to avoid potential pain. Um, it's even gotten so bad that I've sometimes like I'll shut down during sex, uh, just the anxiety of anticipating the pain. Um, I'm not just sad in my pussy. I'm sad in my heart because I'm in my sexual prime. I'm having the best sex of my life and I can't enjoy it. I want to enjoy myself. I want to continue in this lifestyle, but I'm scared it'll never stop and I'll never have a healthy sex life. Um, even if you don't have tips, maybe some of your listeners might. So is there hope for me? Is there anything I could take like probiotics or meds to keep my broken vagina working? Uh, or am I just destined to give up and have vanilla sex with one person for the rest of my life? You were wagging your finger for a second as we listened to that call. Were you judging silently her lifestyle choices? No. She said that she's having – she's at her sexual prime and I would just say hold off on that phrase because you just never know. That's <laughs> what I was saying to her. She's okay. 28, 27. Who knows? When her actual sexual prime is going to come. Yeah. Out. I'm wondering if she's feeling like, oh my gosh, this is my prime. I better use it as much as I can if that's kind of in the equation. There's some sex therapy here that could kind of work and just talking it out. So what did she do about her problematic pussy? Her pussy isn't behaving. <laughs> no. Kind of, that, it was a good call. I have to say I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. I had to fan her. myself during part of it. <laughs> I know. So my first question is um, – No, no. We're the answer people. No questions. That was the oh, question. Oh, but I'm a doctor. You ask a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> um, has she been told to take prophylactic antibiotics prior to sex? Because women who get mm, – there's a variety of numbers bandied about. Six to eight um, infections a year either should be on a routine prophylaxis, which means you take usually one single dose before you're, you have sex in order to prevent all those little bacteria hanging out at your urethra. We have short urethras. You guys have long urethras. You get less bladder infections. We have very short ones. Crawls up there really easily. Taking a single dose of antibiotics. There's no is, need to be pornographic. Sorry, sorry. I thought I was being biologic. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's. Give me uh, nightmares. That's all. Here we are on data. This is evidence. We got data here. Take a single dose of antibiotics prior to sex. Get the little bugs that like to crawl up there to not crawl up there. And it sounds like she does everything else. The other thing is, um. Sounds like it's possible she with with a lot of sexual intercourse, pH changes, semen gives you pH changes. I'm kind of hoping she is using condoms in this context. I would recommend it. Check out the condoms, nonoxanol nine. We've talked about that before. It's a real problem. I'm surprised it's still in condoms because yeah. originally it was there because it was a spermicidal agent or believed to be, and it would decrease infectiousness and what they found is it's such an irritant to skin that it increases That's infectiousness right. because it you know it it tears away at people basically it leaves them raw and then it's easier for viruses to pass into the body so you shouldn't be using lubricants that have nonoxanol 9 in it it used mm -hmm. to the advice 20 years ago was don't use any lubricants that don't have nonoxanol 9 the advice now is don't use it and yeah. nobody should be selling lubricants with nonoxanol 9 in it it's like detergent basically it, it, and it it's bad for, it's yeah. bad for your ass. It's bad for your pussy. It's bad for your health. Don't use it. So make sure that's out of the out of the mix. Definitely causes yeast infections. Sometimes can call bacteria, cause bacterial vaginosis, BV. My, if you put it in a mouse's vagina, the mouse explodes. <laughs> I totally agree with you on that one. Data free zone, but still. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just guessing there. It's not like that carrageenan I stuff. I know. You put that in a mouse vagina, and the mouse explodes. So. 
I, I don't think she needs to change a lot of what she's doing, but look at some of the details. Get the Noxanol 9 What out. about female condoms? I, I assume that with these other people, even though they're kind of in, engaged in some sperm competition play, yes. which for some people is very erotic, that they're using condoms, I hope, uh, we would encourage you to. A female condom has a wider sort of outer sort of landing pad that for a lot of women covers their urethral opening. It does. It and does. Maybe if you haven't used tried female condoms, you might want to stir those into the mix and see if they help. They do. And they're actually really nice thin material. They crinkle a little. You have you kind of have to put up with listening to them or hearing them sometimes, but think of it as like another boyfriend. <laughs> music. Just get the music going. So it's true what's branded as the reality condom does in fact cover more of the urethral opening, so hopefully you're not getting those bacteria in there. Yeast infections almost always make me think of nanoxinol nine, so I'm kind of okay. Look at the ingredients that. list on your lube. Change it up. Carrageenan. Carrageenan, mouse vaginas, and uh, female condoms. Hi Dan, I'm a 26 year old straight male in a long term relationship. My relationship, we recently opened it up. Uh, to sleep with other people, but that's actually not what my call is about. Um, we've we've only slept with um, other people once. My my girlfriend slept with uh, somebody else. Uh, again, not what my call is about. What I'm actually calling this about is about four weeks after she had this encounter, um, we both developed what turned out to be scabies. Um, I had never heard of scabies before, uh, but the doctor who diagnosed us seemed to be pretty adamant that it was uh, an STD or something similar, and that was likely the way uh, that we had contracted it. Uh, Again, this is the first time I'd ever heard about scabies. Is it really an STD? Is that the only way that you can contract it? Scabies are spiders. Mites. Mites? They look like spiders, but they're mites, different than a spider. They're kind of cute. Spider what? Yeah, they are. Spider equivalents. Okay, spider equivalents. I I really like this question. I don't like it, spiders. I'm sorry. Well, don't don't fool around with I'm the mites. Tw- I'm twitching over okay. here. Okay. Uh, here's the here's the person that knows the most about scabies. Elementary school nurse. Scabies are most common or commonly diagnosed among individuals who live in very close quarters, climb all over each other, and have skin-to-skin contact. So can you get it from skin-to-skin contact in somebody you happen to be partners with? Yes, but it is not considered an STI or STD. In fact, WHO, World Health Organization, calls it a water-related disease. So where you see it are, you know, hmm, dorms, army barracks, Likes to go with close contact, moist articles. This is literally the one that you can get sitting on a toilet seat or sitting on someone's yes. couch. This is the one you are really worried about, aren't you? Yes. Actually, it's, why, <laughs> it's why I never go to anyone else's house. Um, so so you know, to this person's point, yeah, yeah, this is – you can get this in a non-sexual context. Yes, you can. Although you can also get it in a sexual yes. context. Yes. I remember scabies roared through the dorms when yes, I was in Yes, it does go through dorms. College and I did my part to keep it roaring. You know, the the easiest way to get it is shake hands with somebody with scabies because it loves to be in between the webs of your fingers, on your wrists. That's where I used to see it when I was in community clinics. He's making a very sad face right now. You know how many people's hands I have to shake everywhere I go? (laughs) Oh, my God. And and just to kind of get you a little more tweaked out, it's a burrowing mite. I knew that would do you in. So now pubic lice. Is a whole different thing. Oh, please cheer me up with pubic lice. I feel better already. So pubic lice aren't a spider or mite. They're an insect. Oh, awesome. It's like crickets for your dick. They don't go under your skin. They hold on. They have like four little legs that they hold on to your pubic hair. So one of the things that's kind of interesting is now that everybody's shaving a whole lot, there's less pubic lice. I was reading that pubic lice are going extinct. I know. They have nothing to hold on to. Which means are they going to declare – like going to find some hairy people and declare them – Habitat for pubic uh, – like is the Environmental Protection Agency, Endangered Species Act going to kick in at some point and they're going to go find some like very hairy people and say, you may not shave. You are yes. habitat for these pubic lice. We don't want them to go extinct. So pubic lice, so-called pubic lice are in fact considered an STI, STD, sexual transmitted infection, blah, blah, blah. But they also like eyelashes. That did him in. Did no more, him no in. more Eskimo kisses. Okay. 
um, so that sometimes you can see from close contact. Also in elementary schools, you'll get kids with pubic pubic lice on their eyes. So I just felt this was a great opportunity to talk about mites, insects, spider-like things, and how you can really get it. You're killing um, me. You're doing this I on know. purpose. I know. I am. Now I'm enjoying this. I want to jump out the window here of the 23rd floor of the Washington <laughs> Mutual Building. So sex gets you close. That's why you can get it. But no, it's not a venereal disease so named after Venus, the goddess of love. Do you know where my trauma comes from? Because when pubic lies – not when, when scabies roared through my d- dorms and everybody got it uh, and I got it from sex – with my boyfriend at the time and it was just – nobody realized they had it. Of course, everybody arrived in September. Every, it was going around that everybody went home. Mm. And so not only did everyone have to disinfect their dorms and dorm rooms, but everybody realized they had scabies when they had gone home. And your mom was like, so what did you learn your first semester at college? And what I learned was, mom, you have to boil the couch. That's right. Or wrap it in plastic for 21 days. That's your other option. Or dry clean it. The couch. That's it. And we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us today. I, I have to say that was a lot of fun, like talking about mice, scabies. Ah, I know. Vampires. Had a, vampires. That was, this, is a, this is a good lineup of questions. Thank you. Anna Karagian. What was it called? Karaginen, your Karaginen. new stage name. My new drag name. Dr. Anna Kaminsky, the senior physician at Planned Parenthood of the Greater Northwest. Thank you so much for coming down and joining us again. It's always a treat to have you here. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun today. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. If you want to record a question or comment for a future show, give us a buzz. The podcast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. There's a comment thread attached to each and every show. If you want to make sure your objections are heard or you want to compliment me every once in a while, just so that I can keep at this, uh, go to thestranger.com slash lovecast where you'll find each and every show with a comment thread of its own. 206-201-2720 is the number. Give us a buzz. Me and the tech savvy at-risk youth. We'll be back at you next week. Another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.